Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another New Books African Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. Today, my guest, and I'm very pleased to have her, is Professor Elizabeth Schmidt. She's Professor of History at Loyola University in Maryland. She received her PhD in African History, Master's Degrees in African History and in Comparative World History, and a Certificate in African Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the author of numerous books, including the one we're going to be talking about today, Foreign Intervention in Africa, From the Cold War to the War on Terror, published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. She's also published with Ohio University Press in 2007, Cold War and Decolonization in Guinea, 1946 to 1958. With Heinemann, she's published two books that I know of, Mobilizing the Masses, Gender, Ethnicity, and Class in the Nationalist Movement in Guinea, 1939 to 1958. That was Heinemann, 2005. And one that figured quite prominently in my early graduate school education, Peasants, Traders, and Wives, Shona Women in the History of Zimbabwe, 1870 to 1939, Heinemann in 1992. And I strongly suspect that, that title, Elizabeth, had some influence on my, my dissertation thesis's thesis advisor's first book, uh, Warriors, Merchants, and Slaves. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's the famous triad. Um, Cold War and Decolonization in Guinea received the African Politics Conference Group's 2008 Best Book Award, while Peasants, Traders, and Wives was a finalist for the African Studies Association's Herskovitz Award and was named by choice as an outstanding academic book for 1994. In addition to her monographs, Elizabeth has published a number of articles in leading journals, including the American Historical Review, the Journal of African History, and Signs, Journal of Women in Culture and Society. She has received two Fulbright Fellowships and a research grant from the American Council of Learned Societies Social Science Research Council. As if that's not enough, Elizabeth is also an outstanding teacher. In 2007, she was awarded Loyola University's Nakbar Award for Outstanding, Outstanding Scholarly Achievement in the Humanities, and in 2008, her Outstanding Achievement in Research, Teaching, and Service was recognized at Loyola's, Loyola's 11th Annual Dean Symposium. In 2010, Elizabeth was co-winner of Loyola's Loyola's inaugural Faculty Award for Excellence in Service Learning and Engaged Scholarship, and in 2012, she received the Faculty Award for Outstanding Service Learning at the 5th Annual Service Learning and Civic Engagement Conference sponsored by institutions of higher learning in the Maryland, Washington, D.C. area. Wow. Welcome to the program, Elizabeth. Wow. Thank you so much, Jim. That's a, that's a very, very flattering and generous introduction. I appreciate it. Well, it's an academic one, and uh, I've had uh, communications from a lot of the people who listen to these podcasts. They want to know about the person beyond the formal bio. So my initial question to you is, um, let's get beyond sort of the formalities of uh, 
bona fides and all that stuff. What sparked your interest in Africa? What influences and aspirations helped to shape your trajectory as a scholar and author, as well as a politically engaged um, Africanist? Well, thank you. Um, I, I think I have a, a, a somewhat unusual um, entree into the uh, academic world. Um, I actually backed into academia through the anti-apartheid movement. I, I didn't intend to go to graduate school and become a historian and teach in an academic institution. Um, I got involved in the anti-apartheid movement in the late 1970s after graduating from college and was part of the divestment, disinvestment campaign, um, which was an attempt to get American banks and corporations that were doing business in South Africa to leave South Africa, to impose um, their own sanctions against the apartheid regime. And um, in order to exert pressure on corporations and banks, students, trade unions, religious bodies, state and local governments were um, urging shareholders to sell stocks in companies doing business in South Africa to avoid, you know, banking with banks that gave loans to the South African government and, and private enterprise. And so my first um, real piece of published research was an activist book uh, that I wrote when I was employed by the Africa Project at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. And that book, which was published in 1980, was called Decoding Corporate Camouflage, U.S. Business Support for Apartheid. And it was actually banned in South Africa. And um, it was intended to provide ammunition, essentially, to uh, the divestment movement to show that American businesses uh, despite fair employment codes or community self-help projects or job training and advancement, uh, we're really doing more harm than good uh, in South Africa and that fair employment codes were being used as a camouflage for the corporation's strategic support for the apartheid regime. So I, um, I actually decided to go to graduate school really um, seeing my PhD as a union card. Um, I wanted to keep working on Africa, and as somebody with a bachelor's in American history from a small liberal arts college, um, I wasn't finding it very easy to uh, get um, a long-term job in, in <laughs> African research areas. So I thought I'd go to grad school, get myself a PhD, and come back and do activist research. But those jobs were few and far between by the time I finished. It was during the Reagan years when um, the kind of work I was doing was somewhat frowned upon. So I sort of meandered into academia and found that I could have it both ways. I could teach students, and, um, and at the same time, I could continue to do research and write, although um, my academic writing, although certainly influenced by my activist background, was really quite, quite different. I, I became a, a social historian and um, explored the lives of ordinary people and their struggles against colonialism um, and uh, in the context of the Cold War. Um, so those were those were my earlier books, the ones you named. And why did I not go back to South Africa? Well, I'd gone in 1981 um, to write for a magazine, Marino Magazine, and I had a lot of problems with the security police. Um, my book had my decoding corporate camouflage book had been published. Um, it had made a bit of a, a stir um, in the business community. Um, they didn't know I'd written it when I got in. Computer uh, systems and tracking people weren't then what they are today. So I managed to get in on a tourist visa. 
and um, traveled all over the country for three months, but eventually the security police caught on to what I was doing. And um, there, there are a lot of stories there that I won't go into, but the upshot was that when I went to grad school, I had to find a new place to focus my dissertation research. And in those days, the mid-1980s, Zimbabwe was um, a very upbeat place. There was a lot of optimism about its its future. It had gotten independence from majority rule just a few years, minority rule just a few years before. Um, so that explains my earliest transition to, to Zimbabwe. Um, so that was sort of how I... I um, I came to academic writing. Um, I decided to focus on the impact of colonialism and, mis- on, um, and missionary activities on women in Zimbabwe. Um, and then um, various personal circumstances led me to Guinea, uh, a French-speaking country in West Africa. And that was quite a change from English-speaking Southern Africa and focus on settler colonialism. Um, but I renewed my interest in in, um, mass mobilization against um, colonial rule. And so my first book was on the role of um, uh, returned World War II veterans, um, market women, um, uh, rural farmers, and um, intellectuals against uh, against French colonialism. And the second uh, focused on... um, um, the impact of the Cold War on anti-colonial mobilizing. So that's that's kind of where I, I came to, um, and um, I can tell you later if you'd like uh, how I came to writing the foreign intervention book. Well, that that is definitely on my agenda. In fact, why don't we pass to it now? Because um, just listening to you and thinking about what I know of your work, um, it seems to me that foreign intervention in Africa represents both a, con- a continuation of your interests and the, the breadth and depth of your research uh, into the continent, both in terms of your geographical uh, your geographical spread as well as your conceptual and intellectual spread, but it also kind of represents a departure from some of your earlier writings. So is that accurate? And if so, what what led you to write this kind of book and how does it differ from earlier ones and what are some of the challenges and opportunities you saw in going about writing what is basically a synthetic um, book geared for a more general audience? Right. Yeah, it was a very, very, very different process. Um, So as you you mentioned, um, I had written three academic monographs before writing for an intervention in Africa, which, as you suggested, is a synthetic work based on previously published work by other authors. So um, the first of my monographs had been my doctoral dissertation. That was the one on women in colonial Zimbabwe. And then there were the two on mass mobilization in Guinea um, against the French colonial regime. Um, And those books um, involved extensive archival research um, in Zimbabwe and the UK for the first book and in Guinea, Senegal, and France for the other two. And they also involved um, in-depth oral interviews with participants in the historical events. I also read as much of the scholarly literature as I could find on the subjects, as well as literature on similar topics in other African countries. And I thoroughly enjoyed those research processes. I really, really loved digging through archival documents to uncover the gems and the smoking guns. And I, I really reveled in knocking on the doors of strangers and being welcomed into their homes and given license to ask them nosy questions. 
And I love the detective work of piecing together a new story and uh, coming up with a new explanation. Um, what wasn't very gratifying um, w- was the extremely delayed gratification. Um, those books and their drafts and their many different shapes and, and forms really hung over my head for many years. And I felt enormously guilty when I wasn't using every spare moment to work on them. So, um, um, when I was approached and asked to write a book for Cambridge's New Approaches to African History series, I thought, well, this, this might be kind of an interesting change, um, uh, change of pace. And it also seemed to work out kind of well in terms of my family life. I had a young son at home, and I had done all the research for my other books before he'd been born, and I had just labored over them every summer while he was in camp um, until I finally got them out, and he was still at home, and I thought, well, you know, I'll do one of these synthetic books and I'll just whip it off in a year or two and then I'll get back to Africa and do my archival research and my oral interviews. So, um, as I said, I was approached by uh, Cambridge University Press. Um, Actually, it was Marty Klein, the editor of the um, New Approaches to African History series. And the purpose of the series is to introduce students to current findings and new ideas in history And the books are intended to be used as modules in general courses on African history and world history. And because of my earlier work on rural women in colonial Zimbabwe, Marty asked if I'd like to write a short book about peasants in Africa. Well, I hesitated. That wasn't really something I felt equipped or inclined to do. And he then suggested that maybe I could develop a topic of my own. And if it would pass muster with the series editorial advisors and the press, I could write a different book. So I proposed for an intervention in Africa. And the reason for that was that for many years, I taught a course um, called Cold War in Southern Africa. And I had often wished that I had a good teaching book that would allow my undergraduates to grasp the complexities of the topic. Now, In that book, I was just focusing on Southern Africa, and that had been the result of my work in the anti-apartheid movement and then my later work in Zimbabwe. Um, When I was doing my dissertation research on women in colonial Zimbabwe, I also um, um, did a side project on um, sanctions against uh, white-ruled Rhodesia and the impact of those sanctions on um, the ultimate... um, end of white minority rule and the coming to power of majority rule. And um, I did a lot of interviewing, especially of white businessmen who had remained in Zimbabwe after it was no longer Rhodesia. And so I, I was you know, very comfortable with um, the idea of Southern Africa and the, the use of um, the communist threat as an excuse to continue to support white minority rule. So I proposed this book. Well, they said, of course, they wanted to cover all of Africa, and then they, they, Cambridge said, well, really, it should come up to the present. People won't buy it if it's only the Cold War. And so I do have a kind of final chapter that's reflections on, on what happened after the end of the Cold War. But again, I have to say that when I undertook this project, I was totally naive about the, um, the difficulty of writing a synthetic book. 
Um, I thought that it would be easier than writing a book for specialists. I wouldn't have to spend years in musty archives, organize interviews, all the logistics, translate and transcribe the interview tapes. All I'd have to do was track down, read, and synthesize the book put it together in a new argument and format, and I was sadly mistaken. Um, I, um, ha- I, I found, of course, that I didn't have scholarly expertise in many of the countries about which I was writing. I did know that. Um, um, but in graduate school, we're trained deeply in a single country or region, although we often teach the continent. And for this book, I had to venture into totally new terrain and educate myself. And this required determining which were the important works on any given subject, which ones were problematic, and then I had to read a vast amount of material for each chapter um, um, because I had to you know, be sure that I got it right. And so, in fact, this book that came out in 2013 took many, many years to research and write. It's, it's a small book. But it was in many ways, for me at least, more challenging than some of the monographs that I wrote. Well, you, you anticipate a number of questions I was going to ask about the writing process and the book itself. Um, as I read it and as I thought more and more about it, and maybe this is going a little too far, but I don't really think so. I think you, talked in, you just talked about specialization uh, where, where as graduate students, and the scholars were encouraged to specialize or focus on a fairly narrow topic and set of concerns, but at the same time were expected to have a broad continental knowledge and to be teaching about and writing about um, broader concerns rather other than the ones that have focused we focused on as researchers. So I kind of felt, and maybe. Uh, I don't want to make you embarrass you, but to me, I kind of got the sense from this book that this is a subtle, not only is it a great textbook for general readers interested in interventions and Africa's historical trajectory from the Cold War to the present, but it seems to me it's sort of a gentle nudge nudge to scholarship in Africa in general, trying to encourage people to kind of get away from the general, uh, this, sorry, the, the specific focus and to kind of see the linkages and connections that come from a general perspective, even one that doesn't require, as this book did, um, primary research, but just delving into sort of the tradition of sources and the wealth of sources that people should know about. Well, um, if if that's the case, I, I must confess, I wasn't necessarily conscious that that's what I was doing, but it, it is true that... Um, um, what I'm doing, and I would never take credit for having initiated this at all. Well, that's but, why I didn't want to embarrass no, you. No, <laughs> no, I don't. But but uh, increasingly, a newer generation of scholars who are far younger than I are talking about transnational history. Um, um, their dissertations often focus on transnational hi- history and making these kinds of linkages and refusing to be constrained by colonial boundaries or um, you know, the realm of a former colonial power. Um, 
and um, and and refusing to locate the center of activities in, in in London or Paris or Washington, but rather looking at the way African activists, political activists, civil society activists, etc., interact amongst themselves and have um, made linkages across national boundaries. Um, um, and so. Um, I think I, I, I was influenced by by those kinds of um, new initiatives in, in the scholarly field, but also I felt that the Cold War writing on Africa did tend to focus on a particular part of the continent exclusively. So Southern Africa, such as my course, or the Horn of Africa, um, or um, North Africa. Um, and so I, I felt that it should be brought together as a single story that is, is very much linked to the wider world. It's not just things happening in Africa. They're very much um, contingent upon um, um, activities in, in Europe and, and the United States, but also on the ways in which Africa fits into that global system. Um, and, and so um, it, it seemed to me that, that um, as citizens of today's world that that all of us need to know much more about um, the world as a whole and, and about places with which we're not as familiar. And so I really was thinking of my students um, as an important audience um, and, and knowing that so often um, when people look at Africa, all they can see is disaster and uh, conflict and violence and um, and too often blame the victim and, and say, you know, why is Africa in such a mess? Uh, why can't they get it together? And um, my, my aim was to, to uncover the roots, actually going back to the slave trade in some cases and, and col the colonial period, but also certainly the Cold War, to look at the role that outsiders have played in creating the situation that African countries find themselves in today um, and and explaining those enduring linkages that that um, that really have hampered African growth um, and well-being for so many years. Hold the thought about um, blaming the victim and Africa's future, because I think we'll get to that okay. later. But that's that is one of the main takeaways I got from your book. Um, as a publisher, I like talking about titles. So let's just talk about your title for a second, because okay. it brings out, to me, the key terms and framework for your study. So let's just go through the words foreign intervention in Africa. What, what, what do you mean by intervention, for example? Okay. Um, well, in, in the introduction, I, I talk about um, how I define intervention. There are so many different kinds of intervention, and I chose to focus on primarily on political and military intervention. Although I do take some time to talk about the kinds of economic interventions that um, were very much at the root of the uh, economic crises that led to the political crises of the, the late 1970s through the 1990s. So those can't, the economic in interventions can't be ignored but given that it was a short book, I decided to focus on political and military. And in defining intervention, I, I mean it as interference. Um, I mean it as a power relationship with um, a country or countries that have um, significantly more power 
interfering in the affairs of one with less power. Um, so it's not an egalitarian, it's not an equal relationship, um, it's not equivalent to influence or exchange, um, but but one where the, the less powerful country is de- deprived of its um, its rights, its sovereignty, its historical agency. Mm-hmm. So you probably wouldn't characterize um, the sending of U.S. troops to the Western African regions affected by Ebola as an intervention. Then would that be a, is that a distinction one could make? Uh, yes, I would make yes, I would make that distinction. I I I, I know that some people oppose that, um, but within um, Liberia, um, where most of them went, um, the population, in fact, was um, upset that. The U.S. did not respond sooner and more quickly, especially given our, um, you know, nearly 200 years of history uh, with Liberia. Um, it was settled by freed um, freed slaves from the United States, who who then ruled the country for about 150 years. Um, so um, we have a long legacy, a long Cold War legacy with um, those governments and. Um, when Liberia went into crisis in the 1980s and 90s, the, the U.S. kind of stood by and said, well, this is an African problem and Africans have to resolve it. And Liberians have never accepted that argument because they felt that, that the United States had a lot to do with making Liberia what it was for better or worse. Um, and um, not to jump too far ahead of myself, but um, the... Um, one of the reasons that Ebola was so devastating in both Liberia and Sierra Leone was because of the economic crises that had destroyed the rural health infrastructures, um, which was very much a result of IMF prescriptions, International Monetary Fund prescriptions in the 1980s and 90s, and also because of the civil wars that, that broke out in those countries that were rooted in the economic crises. And so um, when Ebola hit, there was very, very little in the way of health infrastructure um, for most of the population. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I told you I was not an expert interviewer, and here we've been talking for half an hour and really haven't really talked too much about the substance of your book. Uh-oh, it's my fault. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I want to stress to our listeners that this book is an Elizabeth has achieved, in my opinion, everything she set out to achieve for this book. It's a wonderfully comprehensive synthesis of a number of themes, narratives, and approaches and topics to the history of Africa and its relations with other African countries, but also with foreign countries, uh, uh, mostly Northern Europe, European and North America, United States. Uh, And it's structured in a way that is really ideal for incorporation into a syllabus. I'm just going to read some of the titles, and then I think in the interest of time, we'll pick, up, we'll pick out, tease out a couple of themes that Elizabeth has stressed in the book. But here, here's what she covers in the book. She covers, uh, in her introduction, she outlines the main concepts and theories behind the book and the framework for the book. But then she goes on to talk about um, ideas of nationalism, decolonization, and the Cold War. And we'll pro- perhaps that'll be one of the themes we'll talk about. 
She goes on to talk about the Egyptian and Algerian revolutions, uh, radical nationalism, non-alignment uh, from 1952 to 1973. She goes into an, another chapter, goes into an in-depth uh, analysis and narrative about the Congo crisis, Patrice Lumumba, Mobutu, and uh, the Cold War implications and um, assumptions and misperceptions that many people had about Lumumba and his nationalist agenda uh, in relation to competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and sort of the weakness of the U.N. She talks about Portuguese, uh, Portugal's African empire and its dissolution. She goes back and talks about white minority rule in Southern Africa, conflict in the Horn in Africa, French, France's role in Africa, and she also talks about <clears throat> the relations of African countries to each other and these kinds of interventions and um, consequences of intra-African inter intervention. Um, as I said, it's an excellent book for A Course in African Studies, but I think it's more than that. And I think if we kind of talk about a couple of the themes that Elizabeth stresses in her book, um, people can see how it has a broader application to just Africa. And one of the themes I'd like to talk about with her is in her final chapter, she advances a number of arguments. Here's one she advances. Both colonial and Cold War powers attempted to control the decolonization process in ways they would advance their interests. And in the interest of time, Elizabeth, could you just give us an example of, of an intervention or a story that, that, uh, that explores that theme. Sure. Um, during the period 1960 to 1965, the former Belgian colony of the Congo was the site of um, significant foreign intervention. Um, the reason for this is that the Congo uh, is and was at that time extremely rich in minerals. It's also very strategically located in South Central Africa. It was in close proximity to um, white-ruled settler colonies that were concerned about which, what kind of governments were being set up on their borders. Um, but most importantly, Belgium, the former colonial power, wanted to retain control over the mineral wealth, and the United States, the preeminent Cold War player, also had economic interests, but also was concerned that the Soviets not get their hands on the mineral wealth. So um, these uh, foreign interests, um, Belgium, Britain, the United States, South Africa, um, were deeply engaged in a conflict. Um, some of the countries actually supported a secessionist movement in Katanga, which was the mineral-rich province, and um, even if governments didn't back the secessionist movement, often their corporations did and gave significant support to the leader of the secessionist movement. So um, that was the first thing, that uh, the secessionist movement essentially hived off um, the area that created most of Congo's revenue, um, and um, um, the elected prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, um, really couldn't do much about it. He appealed for UN intervention, but the UN wouldn't throw, uh, wouldn't stop the secessionists. They wouldn't throw out the Belgian troops that had intervened to support the secessionists and protect the mining interests. And um, eventually, um, 
Belgium and the United States decided that Lumumba had to go. He was calling for new economic arrangements as well as a new political arrangement in the Congo. He wanted to institute a a system that would redistribute the wealth uh, to the Congolese people, and they considered him to be a dangerous radical and um, probably a communist. And so uh, initially they um, arranged for a coup d'etat that got him out of power within a few months of independence, but then decided that he really had to go literally and figuratively that um, his, um, he would obviously return to power if they didn't actually physically eliminate him. So the CIA and the Belgian intelligence plotted to assassinate Lumumba. And while he was ultimately killed by um, Congolese secessionists, um, he was put into the hands of those enemies by uh, uh, Belgian and um, U.S. intelligence. So they very much bear responsibility for uh, Lumumba's murder. Um, The person who came to power, although not immediately, was Mobutu Seziseko, who was a military man, extremely corrupt, extremely brutal. He'd been the power behind the scenes since um, the early days of independence uh, as Mobutu, as Lumumba was being edged out, uh, but officially took power in 1965 and ruled the Congo very brutally, um, pillaged its resources for his own personal gain and those of his cronies for nearly four decades. And at the end of the Cold War, when the U.S. suddenly said, oh, this man is abusing human rights, we can't possibly support him, they didn't need him any longer at the end of the Cold War, um, he was driven from power by um, armed resistors um, coming from other countries, and they set up their own dictatorships. Um, And since that time, um, the Congo has been embroiled in conflict with external intervention uh, from a number of countries. Um, um, these conflicts, which began in 1996, um, have consumed, have claimed more than five and a half million Congolese lives uh, from war-related violence, from hunger, from disease, from malnutrition, um, all related to the displacement and economic collapse uh, um, of the war. So. In some, um, the Congolese people have not been able to determine their own future. Um, um, a Congolese civil society, which um, um, had opposed um, the Mobutu regime, was uh, sidelined when um, uh, Mobutu was, was um, driven from power. Um, outside interests have not supported the Congolese people in their, their striving for self-determination and, and um, making their own way. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the legacy has, of colonialism has gone on and on now for, for several decades. So um, this, I think, is a, a really prime example of external intervention that has done enormous harm to African people. And I'm so glad you mentioned this example because uh, a plug for a future podcast, I'll be talking with a professor from UNC, Chapel Hill, uh, about his biography of Lumumba. And we were chatting on the phone the other day about how Lumumba is an important figure, but he's kind of in the periphery of people's consciousness. At the time, there was even a pop hit about Lumumba by the Spencer Davis group called Waltz for Lumumba. And I, we were laughing. We can't imagine any African leader now who would inspire a British pop group to write a, a hit song. Uh, maybe Mandela would, would come to people's minds. So, uh, 
It's great that you mentioned that because it, it's a nice segue for future broadcasts. But um, it also, to me, um, and let's jump ahead, links, it, it provides sort of a nice fitting context for my final point of discussion. It brings out not only the, the impact of foreign interventions, but sort of the internal African dynamics involved in these interventions. It was by no means, even though there were asymmetries of power, it was by no means a, a unilateral imposition. There, were, there was a whole stewing of activities and actors trying to shape and influence these interventions. And I think um, this is where I think your book has implications beyond mere, merely looking, merely with quotation marks, about writing about Africa. But the themes address a whole host of relationships uh, between, if you want to call it, the global north and the global south and sort of the politics and processes. And I think this book would be excellent in a course in general world history politics uh, about the global south. Now, it leads me to my final point, and I really appreciate your time. I know you have a lot of other commitments, Betsy. Uh, you argue foreign intervention in Africa generally did more harm than good. Um, but at the same time, you say it, it becomes increasingly imperative, and this is the moving last sentence of your book, it became increasingly imperative that the voices of African civil society be heard and, then, and that in future debates over foreign involvement, the people of the effective countries set the agenda. Uh, so yes, it did harm, but there's potential for good. So what what do you think um, what what positive things can emerge from your analyses, and what kind of agenda do you think would be the most fruitful one to pursue, both for Africans and for people interested in seeing a positive direction for African development? Okay, well, that is a, a big question, isn't it? And <laughs> no one really knows the answer. Uh, I think we're all trying to feel our way here. But I think the most important point is that we need to abandon paternalism. Um, we need to abandon the idea that we know what's best for them. And um, that that actually leads me back to the anti-apartheid movement when um, – um, so often people who called for disinvestment and withdrawal of corporations from South Africa were told, you know, you're going to harm the very people you say you want to help. We're providing jobs for Africans uh, under apartheid. We're, we're paying them better salaries than the white South African firms are paying. And we would say to them, listen, the, the, the mobilized um, South African population is asking us to impose sanctions. They're asking us to isolate South Africa economically. How can we then say, we know that that's not good for you? No, we're going to go on and invest in the petroleum sector, the, the computer pro, pro, uh, product sector, um, the, um, the motor vehicles industry, and and, um, and, you know, when people are saying we're willing to lose our jobs for the long-term goal of um, a democratic and just society. Um, and so I, I feel that, that so often um, um, even people with genuine humanitarian motives are so sure that they know the answer, that they don't listen to the people on the ground who are saying that isn't the way we want to do it or what about this what about that we know our culture we know our community we know people's values that won't work but this will 
listen to us. And I think it's very hard for, um, I, I guess, Westerners in particular, but maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong there. I mean, maybe the same could be say for, said for people in the Eastern Hemisphere as well, uh, that <laughs> uh, that um, that we, we sort of have a history because of the power and privilege that we've had of um, expecting our views are going to be implemented. So it's also important, I think, to know that that um, Africans have mobilized in their various societies, that there are organizations that are working on these same problems, um, women's and youth organizations, trade unions, farmers cooperatives, human rights organizations. And not only do we need to uh, listen to them and work with them, but we need to put their ideas first and foremost and learn from them um, before um, um, uh, in, in lieu of, I should say, in lieu of prescribing for them what we think needs to be done. And I think if we had done this more often, um, we would not have made the mistakes that we have made and that we continue to be making um, around the world today. Uh, yes, not just in Africa. Um, um, that that we, we know little about the societies in which we implicate ourselves and and sort of barge in like a bull in a china shop and um, are flabbergasted all the time at the, the disastrous con- consequences, uh, many of which could have been foreseen if we had known more about the history and the culture and listened to the people. I couldn't have um, expressed... Uh a better reason for sh- for my argument that the book is much more about much more than foreign intervention in Africa. It's basically a book that encourages us to think about our relationships in new ways. And and I'm kind of heartened. I don't know if you've seen the latest issue of The New Yorker, but there was a great article about how Liberians themselves have been dealing with the Ebola issue uh, against great odds, uh, independently of foreign assistance. Right. And uh, and I think. Uh, if your book, uh, the New Yorker article is encouraging us to listen to librarians and see what they're doing, your book's encouraging us to listen as well. And I think listening is a good thing. Even better is reading this book. <laughs> Foreign Intervention in Africa, From the Cold War to the War on Terror. Uh, new, it's part of Cambridge University's New Approaches to African History. The author is Professor Elizabeth Schmidt from Loyola. Loyola University in Maryland. Uh, I apologize for the uh, unforeseen glitch in our um, broadcast, but we'll try and cobble it together because it's an important one. Uh, Betsy, I can't thank you enough for being a guest. Uh, we, I know I didn't do justice to your book. It, it's so it's such a important and big book, but maybe listeners will get an idea about the flavor and the passion and commitment behind it. I really appreciate your being on the well, show. Thank you so much, Jim. I'm I'm really honored that you, you asked me uh, for an interview and you chose to feature my book. Um, and um, I, I really can't thank you enough. <laughs>